Dritz Doerden, who we're going to get into right now, is one of the most complicated and contradictory characters in all fantasy. He's wildly unknown and wildly known at the same time. Like people outside of fantasy have no clue that he even exists. They've never heard of him. But he's big enough that a gaming company has now recently decided to base a game around him because his pull of his fans is that big that he can carry a game and I'm pretty sure he can do it. Um, he is from an evil race, but he's good at heart. He is a warrior that desires peace. He is all these different things. And this is something I can't wait to get into. And I've been waiting to discuss this character since we started the show. So this is now the original, the origin of Dritz Doerden. It is episode one of Homeland, part one of the Dark Elf trilogy. As far as I know, the first introduction of Dritz Doerden is not in this book. It's not in Homeland. This was an effort to flesh out a character that became wildly popular in another book by the same author, R.A. Salvatore, Robert Salvatore, Bob Salvatore, so many different ways to call him, that he was obliged and I think essentially begged by the people at TSR, this was still TSR, to, to do a backstory of Dritz Doerden. He is a dark elf ranger who lives on the surface, and the book he was originally featured in was called The Crystal Shard. It is a standard swashbuckling fantasy adventure. It was his, you know, what is amazing to me that that was Ari Salvatore's first published novel, and it was a smash. It ended up being a smash. Um, Largely due to the amazing characters he built. His his strength at first was not dialogue. It was not any of those things. His strength was world building and character building. You had, they were standard characters, but he injected a different note. You had Dritt Stoward and the renegade Dark Elf Ranger who had fled from an awful existence among his evil people because to stand for his principles. That's a great thing, and that's an interesting thing. You had Brunor Battlehammer, one of the greatest names ever in the history of fantasy. <laughs> Tremendous fucking name. <laughs> who, who is the leader of a, basically a, a, a direct copy of the dwarves from the hobbit who have been dismissed from their mountain home by a dragon you know clan Battlehammer. and by the way their standard you know instead of being a dragon or a hammer or something like that is a foaming tankard of ale because they like to drink that's awesome you have wolfgar son of bjornagar who is from this race of giant barbarians and he and brunor makes him a hammer that returns to his hand who is that that's thor that's just thor and he's big and giant and blonde and then you have his love interest and then the friend caddy bry who is a or brie who is a human raised by brunor among the dwarves who's become a warrior woman and a bow and a uh, archer and a amazing warrior in her own right so that's where this character was introduced and i remember hating the book the first time I picked it up because I was too young for it. Um, 
then I started actually reading it, and the, I remember the second it grabbed me is when I figure, figured out that Dritzt was a dark elf, and that fascinated me. I was like, well, what are those? I mean, this was still early on in fantasy. You know, I knew elves, and I was like, what is, what's a dark elf? Dark elves are a race of evil. That's awesome. That is very indicative. Um, dark elves are a race of elves who are evil, who have turned away and were basically banished by their cousins on the surface. Now, we've just got done with Kryn. Kryn elves are, do have some wild variations. And in Toriel, the, lore, the uh, world of Forgotten Realms, I don't know, because I never dipped that hard into it. You know, I never bought the source books. I never really looked it up on the internet because I was beyond that when I was, you know, beyond those things when the internet had come out. I had moved on to other things and was in a fantasy drought for quite a while. Or actually, I'd moved on to more, quote unquote, epic fantasy, you know, where and I actually turned my nose up at some of the books that I now have started to read again and remembered why I like them. They are not literature. They are to a certain, in, in, in as much as it's written and it's good and all these things, but it's a swashbuckler. It's not, there's, there is heavy existential things going on, but in, in a sense, it doesn't do those things as well as a lot of the other, uh, the, the epic fantasies like your George R. R. Martins and your Tad Williams and your, you know, Tolkien. So, Tolkien doesn't do uh, existential things good either, by the way. He is, his strength is more just, epicness itself so these books are were a lot of fun to a younger me and young young adults because there's not a lot of that heavy exposition there's you know they drop you right in the in the action and it's really fascinating the characters there is some mustache twirling we'll get into that but back to the original point the dark elves on toriel uh, and the elves in general on Toriel seem to be much more varied than the elves on Kryn. And I, w- I, also, I also always wanted to see what their reaction would be to each other. The Quellinesti and the Sylvanesti would react to their surface cousins, you know, probably with a fair amount of, you know, not antipathy, but it'd be like, well, that's just us again here, you know. They may be a little bit different. They, you know, magic is more commonplace here, whatever. But their dark elf cousins, I think they would be horrified by the same way the surface elves in Toriel are horrified by them. They are evil to their core. And the worst thing about it is, is that they're not actually a race of evil. They're a race that became evil. So deep down in their hearts, they have a conscience. It makes them a race that is incredibly paranoid. And, you know, their conscience, you know, is there somewhere and it is it does weigh on them and they you know we'll get into that but the place that they they do not occupy the surface anymore they put a place called the underdark and r.a salvatore starts us out with a nice very flowery his a lot of his writing would be considered flowery i like it um prelude uh, uh, that is a description of the underdark quote Never does a star grace this land with a poet's light of twinkling mysteries, nor does the sun send to hear its rays of warmth and life. This is the Underdark, the secret world beneath the bustling surface of the Forgotten Realms, whose sky is a ceiling of heartless stone and whose walls show the green blandness of death and the torchlight of the foolish surface dwellers that stumble here. This is not their world, not the world of light. Most who come here uninvited do not return. 
Those who do escape to the safety of their surface homes return changed. Their eyes have seen the shadows and the gloom, the inevitable gloom of the underdark. Dark quarters meander throughout the dark realm in winding courses, connecting caverns great and small with ceilings high and low. Mounds of stone as pointed as the teeth of a sleeping dragon leer down in silent threat or rise up to block the way of intruders. There is a silence here, profound and foreboding, the crouched hush of a predator at work. He is really, he really goes for it here. I mean, I can chuckle and marvel at it at the same time, and I do, to continue, quote, too often the only sound, the only reminder to travelers in the underdark that they have not lost their sense of hearing altogether is a distant and echoing drip of water, beating like the heart of a beast, slipping through the silent stones to the deep underdark pools of chilled water. What lies beneath the still onyx surface of these pools, one can only guess. What secrets await the brave, what horrors await the foolish, only imagination can reveal until the stillness is disturbed. This is the underdark. There are pockets of life here, cities as gray as many of those on the surface. Around any of the countless bends and turns in the gray stone, a traveler might stumble suddenly into the perimeter of such a city, a stark contrast to the emptiness of the corridors. These places are not havens, though. Only a foolish traveler would assume so. They are the homes of the most evil races in all the realms, most notably the Dorgar, the Kuotoa, and the Dro. The Dorgar are, are the dwarven equivalent of dark elves. They are, they are, dark, they are called gray dwarves. They are evil dwarves. The Kuotoa are like a uh, fish race. I looked up pictures of them. I wasn't too impressed. Um, but to continue, quote, in one such cavern, two miles wide and a thousand feet high, looms Menzo Baranzan, a monument to the otherworldly and ultimately deadly grace that marks the race of Drow elves. Menzo Baranzan is not a large city by Drow standards. Only 20,000 dark elves reside there. Where in ages past, there had been an empty cavern of roughly shaped stalactites and slagmites now stands artistry. Row after row of carved castles thrumming in a quiet glow of magic. The city's perfection of form, where not a stone has been left to its natural shape. The sense of order and control, however, is but a cruel facade. Facade. <laughs> a, de- a deception hiding the chaos and vileness that rule the dark elves' hearts. Like their cities, they are beautiful, slender, and del- delicate people, with features sharp and haunting. Yet the drove are the rulers of this un- unruled world, the deadliest of the deadly, and all other races take cautious, cautious note of their passing. Beauty itself pales at the end of a dark elf sword. The droves are the the drove are the survivors, and this is the underdark, the valley of death, the land of na- nameless nightmares. That's an extremely good beginning, and it's apt. Um, and for uh, people's sake, uh, I know some people. We have a difference of opinion on on uh, pronunciation. I will call them the dro because I like that better. I do not like drow because it's got that ow sound. I don't like that. I think dro sounds a little bit more menacing. So I will stick with dro. Um, but yeah, it is a good description of an extremely dangerous and haunting place. Um both this place and we'll get into here in a second, Menzo Baranzan, the city of the dark elves. Robert Salvatore, R.A. Salvatore, I think is largely responsible for taking something that was a general idea and really giving it form and flesh and really turning it into what it is, especially the Drow. Like they were always a thing in 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 any Dungeons and Dragons. World in Korean, the Drow are not these. The Drow are dark elves who have, um, are the dark elves who have turned from the light. Among their ranks, you we get we will uh, discuss Dalimar the Dark, who we've discussed before, who was a Sylvanesi elf who became a black robe wizard, who now because of that. His life is forfeit. If any elf sees him, it is their it is their obligation to kill him. 
because he has done something that is so inexcusable that he deserves death. The Drow here are different. They are a different race apart. I've read some of their history. It is long, convoluted stuff. I'm not going to get into it. Um, it's interesting, of course. They are a race that chose their path, and then they were changed physically to to become what they were. They had at one point pale skin like their cousins, but then when they became evil, they became dark skinned. I know that would not fly in a lot of ways um, nowadays, but they're not. I don't think anyway, the way it is described to me, they are not African-American in their look or African. They are just black skinned. Like their skin is like ebony, you know, and, and it's shines and they um, have elven features. Um, Drow women are known for their beauty. Um, and we'll get into that. But they're the first thing that Ari Salvatore writes. See, this is a memoir. This book is a memoir. Basically, from Dritt's, Dritt's point of view, and he's not even in this part that we're going to discuss until the very end. Um, well, that's not exactly true. He'll come in at the end, but his his he is in the beginning, but it's not as an active participant. He's a passive. It's his birth. So he has this part about station. It's called Part One Station, and this is from Dritt Stewart, and quote, Station. In all the world of the Drow, there is no important word, more important word. It is the calling of their, of our religion, the incessant pulling of hungering heartstrings. Ambition overrides good sense, and compassion is thrown away in its face. All in the name of Loth, the Spider Queen. That's their goddess. Um, ascension to power in Drow society is a simple process of assassination. The Spider Queen is a deity of chaos, and she and her high priestesses, the true rulers of the Drow world, do not look with ill favor upon ambitious individuals wielding poison daggers. Of course, there are rules of behavior. Every, every society must boast of these. To openly commit murder, murder or wage war invites the pretense of justice, and penalties exacted in the name of Drow justice are merciless. To stick a dagger in the back of a rival during the chaos of a larger battle or in the quiet shadows of an alley, however, is quite acceptable, even applauded. Investigation is not the forte of Dro justice. No one cares enough to bother. Station is the way of Loth, the ambition she bestows to further the chaos to keep her Dro children, air quotes, among their... Uh, among their appointed course of self-imprisonment. Children, pawns more likely, dancing dolls for the Spider Queen, puppets on the imperceptible but impervious strands of her web, all climb the Spider Queen's ladders, all hunt for her pleasure, and all fall to the hunters of her pleasure. Station is the paradox of the world of my people, the alimentation of our power within the hunger for power. It is gained through treachery and invites treachery against those who gain it. The most, those most powerful in Mento Baron's end spend their days watching over their shoulders, defending against the daggers that would find their backs. Their deaths usually come from the front. That is a stunningly good passage in parts. He, Salvatore, Really goes for hyperbole sometimes, but man, sometimes he just nails it, and he is ebbs, and he'll write some stuff that is as quotable as anything I've ever read, and he really gets a lot of those, and a lot of his characters say things that are extremely poignant, and we'll get into that too. There's, you know, I've, of course, I've highlighted things that some of the characters have said. Um, this idea, Menzo Baranzan, is. That's a great name, by the way. There's another uh, city, which is not as well-named, uh, not far. I think it might even be a larger city than Menzo Baron called Chednasad, which is still a decent name, but um, there are larger cities. But 
we're going to get into Menza Berenzan and why I think it's just a cool idea and why it's so cinematic and why it could be so great and why it's really ahead of its time, ahead of its time. Because I think that, excuse me, I think that Robert Salvatore was seeing things in a cinematic light. I think that he really is a cinematic kind of writer. He's, he knows things that would play on, you know, on a show or in a movie, obviously in a movie because shows like this did not exist when this was written. This was written in, um, I'll have to look that up. Honestly, I can't believe I don't know that at, 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 at earliest 19, not at late as 1990 might have been written in 1988, but it is an old, old book. Um, as fantasy books go, but uh, I, I, this mafia idea, these families who are willing to kill each other, I don't think that there is anything to be gained by worshiping the Spider Queen because I don't think the Spider Queen Queen cares. I think that she does this because she has done this. She's a capricious, evil, nasty as, as goddess as you can pot her and Tachesis. I think she might be even too much for Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness in Kryn. Even she'd be like, Jesus, did you really have to do that? That wasn't that's a little extreme, you know. Um, or they might be best buddies. I don't know. And that's something I honestly like to see somebody write as a maybe a chess game between these two. Um, the Spider Queen, I think, has created essentially helped create these people as they are because it amuses her. They are a cosmic gag reel. They are she puts these things in motion just so that she can dash these people's hopes and keep destroying them and have them keep destroying each other because she finds it endlessly amusing. She honestly does not care for their prayers other than the fact that prayers for a God, especially in, in uh, Toriel and the forgotten realms are sustenance to the deities. So she's getting fed and she's getting fed by all of them. But I think she also lasts behind her hand and loves what they do to each other. So, we begin with um, the introduction of Denon Doerden, who is Dritt's older brother. Uh, he is the second boy of House Doerden, um, and he is on a uh, clandestine mission. Quote, to a surface dweller, he might have passed undetected only a foot away. The padded football, footfalls of his lizard mount were too light to be heard, and the pliable and perfectly crafted, crafted mesh armor that both Ryder and Mount wore bent and creased with their movements, as well as if the suits had grown over their skin. Denon's lizard, Denon's lizard trotted along an easy but swift gait, flowing over the broken floor, up the walls, and even across the long tunnel ceiling. Subterranean lizards, when they're sticky and soft three-toed feet, were preferred mounts for just this ability to scale stone as easily as a spider. Crossing hard ground left no damning tracks in the lighted surface world, but nearly all the creatures of the Underdark possessed infra, possess infravision, the ability to see in the infrared spectrum. The footfalls left heat residue that could easily be tracked if they followed a predictable course along a corridor's floor. It's cool stuff. Um, and we get a good description of uh, Denon himself. He's pretty standard dro. Quote, he had no light to guide him, but he needed none. He was a dark elf, a dro, an ebon-skinned cousin of those sylvan folk who dance under the stars on the world's surface. To Denon's superior eyes, which translated subtle variations of heat into vivid and colorful images, the Underdark was far from a lightless place. Colors all across the spectrum swirled before him in the same in the stone walls of the, and the floor, heated by some distant fissure or hot stream. The heat of living things was the most distinctive, letting the dark elf view his enemies in details as intricate as any surface dweller would find in brilliant daylight. Yeah, they don't. There is no dark. There is no light here but the infravision they have is so you know imagine the predator 
you know, from the Predator movie, that's Infravision. Now imagine that so enhanced that he sees as well as we do in light, in brilliant, in brilliant light, that is. And there are heat shadows and all that stuff. It's it's a different take on vision and um I love it. I think it's a really cool idea. You know, um, I think the Dorgar also have this. It might not be as, as sharp as the Dro. The Dro are known for their for their superior eyesight um, and hearing too, for that matter. Um, there's all kinds of cool races. The Dorgar, one of my favorites, first Nemlin, who are the deep gnomes. We'll get into them. They're really cool. Um, I don't know. If, I think they see in light, but I think they have limited infravision. Um, you know. All kinds of different creatures in the Underdark, and we'll get into a lot of them because there's so many fascinating ones. Um, but he is headed to, again, like I said, a clandestine meeting. Um, and then he gets off of his uh, lizard to to uh, meet the person he's meeting. Quote, Denon dismounted, leaving his lizard clinging comfortably to a wall at, at his chest level. He's reached under the the collar of his pilafwi, I don't know if that's how to pronounce that, his magical shield and cloak, and took out his neck purse. From this den and produced the insignia of House Dewarden, a spider wielding various weapons in each of its eight legs, and emblazoned with the letters DN for Derman Neshaz Baranen. I mean, it's there's some a lot of mouthful words here, the ancient and formal name of House Dewarden. That might have been their name on the surface. I think that it's, you know, it's even a mouthful for them, so they've shortened it. Um, he walks into the uh, to a place called Tier Brochet, which is the um, it's where the different schools of dro- uh, of the Dro are. You have um, the academy, um, where hold on. It's the academy is made up of three buildings. I'm sorry. Arak Tenelith, the spider-shaped school of Loth, which is, you know, their their religion. Sorcery, the 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 it's the place of uh wizards, it's graceful, you know, columns. It's pretty by rote what do you expect from a dark elf wizard, you know, it's very mystical looking. Um and then Mealy Magther, the uh it's almost a plain pyramid where male fighters learn their trade. Quick word about this. Um the roles in, in Dro society are reversed than they are for humans and maybe even surface elves. I think, I don't know if I, they've made this distinction. Um, the females are larger and stronger. They're, you know, they, they, they hold all positions of power. Essentially. Um, they can be somewhat, you know, have some measure of equality, especially if a male is shows particular strength or intelligence or all those things, but they go into male trades. Wizards are usually males. Priestesses, there are no male priests of the Church of Loth. There are none, and there will be none, um, at least to my knowledge. You know, there's always exceptions. People are always going to create that character. Well, this guy breaks the rules. Dritt Stewart, in a sense, is that, but his is in a more conventional way and evil. It comes from an evil race and doesn't want to be evil anymore. Um, I don't think that they would allow a priest to operate within their hierarchy. He would be killed immediately, especially if he was powerful and Loth would encourage that. She would encourage it as long as it was entertaining. If it was more entertaining to keep him alive, she would make sure all the matron mothers and all the priestesses didn't kill him because she finds that funny that it pisses them off so bad. She is an, a, a cosmic bitch and hates those and loves those things. 
we'll get into that one of the books later because there's lots of books in this series. One of my favorite ones is Siege of Darkness. And, you know, um, the the machinations that are going on in Menzo Barron's and even after Dritz has left, after he's been on the surface a hundred years, are still crazy. And and this giant war descent, it's it's something else, and it's really good. And there's actually even a series called War of the Spider Queen, where it's books written by different authors other than R.A. Salvatore about this war that just engulfs the city of Menzo Barron's and I think all of Drow's society. So back to the original point. Males are fighters too And you have exceptional male fighters of course Because just like in our society You're going to have women that are large and strong We have some women out there that are large and strong and good fighters In any society um, We'll get into um, one of my favorites Who is in House to Erden And is a terrifying figure that women will not challenge Because he's just that good um, But then we get a, a description From Denon's point of view of Menzo Berenzan uh, From the Madden's point of Tier of, uh, Brachet Quote, beyond Tier Brochet, through the, through the ornate st- stalagmite columns that mark the entrance to the academy, the cavern dropped away quickly and spread wide, going far beyond Denon's lines of vision to either side and farther back than his keen eyes could possibly see. The colors of Menzo Baron's end were threefold to the sense of eyes of the drow. Heat patterns from various fissures and hot springs swirled about the entire cavern. Purple and red, bright yellow and subtle blue crossed and merged, climbed the walls and stalagmite mounds, or ran off singular, singularly in cutting lines against the backdrop of dim gray stone. More confined than these generalized and natural grayations of color in the infrared spectrum were the regions of intense magic, like the spiders Denon had walked between. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. He walked between these two giant spiders that if you try to invade Menzo Baron's and into the academy, they animate and come out and kill you. He, had, well, he was worried that it might happen because he wasn't uninvited, but he is a, he is a master of, I think he's, he was once in Mealy Magther and was a, and it was a, Denon is an extremely good fighter. I think they sell him short sometimes, but I mean, sometimes they don't. It's hard to, it's hard to explain because everybody's so good that it's like professional wrestling. Who's the best, you know, but to continue like the spinners, spiders Denon had walked between virtually glowing with energy. Finally, were there the actual lights of the city, fairy fire and highlighted sculptures on the houses. The drove were proud of the beauty of their designs and especially ornate columns were perfectly crafted. Gargoyles were almost always lined in permanent magical lights. That is the most colorful thing you can imagine. This city of haunting beauty to our eyes, it would be disturbing because it's just so alien to us. We would be terrified of course, because it's dark and it's silent most of the time, but you can hear things going on, um, especially in the Drove City. There'll be lots of spiders, spiders as big as as high as your knee. You are forbidden to kill them. Uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, they're, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, huge imagine, spider. How, imagine how tough it would be to get through one of their webs. I walk into spider webs a thousand times a day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there is that that thing, too. They are sacred to Drow, and you are not allowed to kill them. And men- Like cows in uh, India? Well, they're not. They're not. They don't love the cow. They don't love the spiders. They're not. No, they love the spiders because they're they're loths, you know, uh, representatives on this plane. I guess they they think you know they're very superstitious people too. Loth probably wouldn't give a shit if a spider was killed, but she wants to make them as nervous and and paranoid as she possibly can. So she just passed out and agree. Oh yeah, if you kill a spider, you're done. And she doesn't pay attention. Again, I, I consider Loth to be her and Kitty Ara would get on great. <laughs> They're just awful people. Um, but uh, the 
Men, boys, especially young boys, are have to look away when a spider crosses their path because they're not allowed to look in its eyes because they're not worthy to look in its eyes. And they got like a thousand eyes. Right. The matriarchal, you know, bent of the society is so that men have to be constantly told their place, you know. You have exceptions to this, of course. Like, um, there's one family whose males are huge, and they're bred to be huge because I think even amongst Dro, as strong as the females are, the, 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 the men still to this day have a more compact musculature and might actually be physically stronger. I'm not sure about that, but it seemed to me that way. Like, especially when you get dealing with Dritz and other, and Denon too. Denon's an excellent fighter. Um, we'll get into that too. Um, all these things are open to interpretation. I like to think that maybe the women think they're more, you know, dominant than they actually are because men are in some ways the movers and shakers in society too. Um, especially, an especially powerful wizard is terrifying to everybody. So, um, and uh, it's a real catch 22 with them. Um, I imagine too, that men's Baron's and in any kind of, uh, adaptation movie TV show, I, the way I would do it, and I think would be something cool, if you would almost portray Menzo Baranzan as a modern city with, you know, think of Tokyo, only underground with stalactites and and instead of, you know, well, no, advertisements too, because in this place there have to be, they, they sell armor, clothes, you know, there's bars, there's all kinds of stuff. So, so you're thinking about sort of like um, Boz Lerman's adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Somewhat, but a more apt description would be whenever you see like Blade Runner with all the dark and all the rain. Of course, there's no rain in the Underdark. It's notoriously dry. So, but, you know, they, they have the giant, you know, commercials for like Coca-Cola and stuff like that. I would portray it like that. There's a thumping music somewhere because there's bars and nightclubs. You, the the, 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 the drove would be, excuse me, it would be like that. The drove would be, I think, would be big partiers. I think they would have, because they are extremely um, hedonistic. They like drugs. I, I can imagine them liking drugs. I can imagine them, you know, having sex with demons that they conjure, and that actually does happen at one point. Um, they, you know, I can imagine them, it's almost very vampiric quality to the drow you know because they are for all intents and purposes to us immortal you know um five centuries of life is not anything remarkable so you know you can imagine you know all these people with all these endless amusements who are you know have no conscience about all the things they do to each other can you imagine but it would be awful for us quote this was menza Mar- Marin- and the city of dro Twenty thousand dark elves live there Twenty thousand soldiers in the army of evil i highlighted that because i thought that was a bit much sorry robert <laughs> i thought that was a little a little over the top you do make up for it in every other conceivable way but sometimes you'll throw one in there that i kind of i'm sorry in the most loving way possible roll my eyes um you think he's gonna listen to this no <laughs> we can try uh well i mean we could tag him in or whatever and um there's not a whole lot of people talking about this type of stuff so there's probably only like i would five or six thousand podcasts yeah, no i was <laughs> i mean in in the in the manner of podcasts that's actually a very limited amount yeah there's a, more than a million active podcasts right now that's crazy yeah um i like this too then we get uh denon looking at norbondale norbondale is it's the the clock of Menzo Berenzan. It's the it's the Big Ben of Menzo Berenzan, essentially. Quote 
Denon studied Narbondale, the huge central pillar that served as the time clock of Menza Baranzan. Narbondale was the only way the drove had to mark the passage of time in a world that otherwise knew no days and knew no seasons. At the end of each day, the city's appointed archmage cast his magical fires in the base of the stone pillar. There, the spell lingered throughout the cycle, a full day on the surface, and gradually spread its warmth of the structure of Narbondale into the whole of the it glowed red in the infrared spectrum. The pillar was fully dark now, cold since the Dweemer's fires had expired. Dweemer's spell. The wizard was even now at the base, didn't reason, ready to begin the cycle anew. It was midnight, the appointed hour. Um, he's approached by um, a person in robes um, and questions if, if he is a student or master. And Denon kind of in a huff says, only a master will... Uh, only a master may walk out of house in Tier Brochet in the dark, Black Death of Narbondale. Narbondale. Um, they discuss a payment for something that's going to be done. Um, this person is the, he's known as the faceless one. He is the most powerful mage in uh, Menza Baranzan, but oddly, he can't fix his own face. He's called the faceless one because a magical spell has literally burned his face off. So he has a blank ball of goo where his face is. I think his eyes still work, of course, but it's just, especially to a people obsessed with physical beauty, this has got to be one of the most awful disfigurements, you know. And he would be, if he wasn't powerful, he would have been cast out of his own house and probably, you know, murdered and to be murdered in a uh, alley, but he's still super powerful. Um. He asked me if he has his payment, and um, Denon grows angry and says, do you doubt the word of Matron Malice? Matron Malice is the uh, the matron mother of the Doerden family, Dermon Nishaz Baranon. She's, we'll get into her. She's a fascinating and entertaining character. Um, a little ball of rage. She's barely five feet tall. I mean, she might not even be five feet tall. Um, and we'll get into her. Quote, the face was one slumped back, knowing he had erred. My apologies, second boy of House Dillardin, he answered, dropping to one knee in a gesture of surrender. Since he had entered this conspiracy, the wizard had feared that his impatience might cost him his life. He had been caught in the violent throes of one of his own magical experiments, the tragedy melting away all of his facial features and leaving behind a blank hot spot of white and green goo. Matron Malice Dillardin, reputedly as skilled as anyone in the, all the vast city in mixing potions and salves, had offered him a sliver of hope that he could not pass by. Basically, saying she'll cure his face and restore him to um, restore his features. The deal they're working out is is uh, he's going to kill an apprentice at source at sorcerer called sorcerer called uh, Alton Devere. This is where we get into the meat of the story. What is happening now is a fascinating thing in Drow society. You have these houses and they're ranked, and like any. And houses are families. You know, imagine Game of Thrones type stuff. Um, the Doerden family is 10th at this point, so they're barely in the running. But what they're planning to do is very ambitious and even dangerous. They are attempting to take out, I think, the fourth house of Menza Barons and the Devere family. And they have to be wiped out. Here, here's the way raids and 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 vendettas and these things work in Menzo Baranzan. If you do this, you have to wipe out wipe out every noble, root and stem, down to the last child. You have to kill them all. If there is one left to bring an accusation to to the city council, you die. 
you have failed in that. And then you get the draw justice. I'm doing air quotes. There is no justice to it. Um, we actually, at some point later uh, in another show, we will discuss what this justice looks like. It is pretty terrifying. It is um, as terrible as you can possibly imagine. Um, but House Dorden is known for its, under the hand of Malice Dorden, known for its audacity, for its uh, power. They are so powerful to be such a smaller house. They have uh, well-trained soldiers. They have three high priestesses, four counting their mother. I mean, not well. They have two daughters that are going to be high priestesses. They have one daughter, the eldest, who is a high priestess in very good standing with Loth. And also, Mouse herself, who is in incredibly high standing with Loth, that you have to have the Spider Queen's blessing to carry out one of these attacks. You don't have to, but if you don't, things are not going to go your way. It'll be complicated. And it will, ta- yeah, it will take an extremely powerful house to override that, and Loth wouldn't like that, and then all the other houses might line up against you anyway. See, this is the, the how crazy the society is. There are no real rules, but they pretend there are rules. It's an agreed-upon grift that they're all engaged in this would be a very trumpian way of looking at things you know this who's you know losers and winners that's the only standard you know um and what they're going to do is uh they're going to carry this this attack out um of course the faceless one as i said denon is paying him well malice is paying him to wait to kill aton devere devere and uh the faceless one agrees of course because why wouldn't he um Denon is satisfied this is happening. Then he makes his way back to House Dorton. Um, I like this part because he they feel real inferiority complex. And he um, is going through the city on his lizard. And then all these creatures are, some of them are scram- most scrambling to get out of his way. Then he comes upon a party of bugbears where there's a giant goblinoid race they're you know they're probably eight ten feet tall huge they might likely be slaves in men's or barons and because you don't have a lot of free people who aren't dro and men's or barons and you'd have to be either an extra planar creature which we would get into the illithids or mind flayers um that some of the others you know uh the ones that i kind of liked uh from the planar creature the gith yank guy the gith zerai who are these other planar creatures who are massively evil and super powerful, they would really like being in a Drow city. It might even be a vacation spot for them. You know, it'd be like, hey, let's get off this awful place and go to a slightly less awful place and watch these elves who used to be good murder each other. It's a good time. So I could see that happening. I could see that conversation. Um, so he is very capricious and vengeful, as most elves are. Quote, you will learn respect of House Dorden soon enough, the dark elf whispered under his breath as he turned and charged his lizard at the group. The bugbears broke into a run, turning down alleys strewn with stones and debris. Denon found satisfaction by calling on the innate powers of his race. He summoned a globe of darkness impervious to both infravision and normal sight in the fleeing creature's path. He supposed it was unwise to call such attention to himself, but a moment later, when he heard crashing and sputtered curses as the bugbear stumbled blindly over his stones, he felt it was worth the risk. Um, he then does a thing. He goes to uh, check out House Devere, you know, what it looks like. Quote, at the Mushroom Grove's southern end, the impetuous drove found what he was looking for, a cluster of five foot, five, four, 
Five huge floor-to-ceiling pillars that were hauled into a network of chambers and connected with metal and stone parapets and bridges. Red glowing gargoyles, the standard of the house, glared down from a hundred perches like silent sentries. This was House Devere, fourth house of Mensa Baronzan. Um, what had happened was is that the reason they're making this move is Matron Genefe or Genefe failed in a an attempt to do something and is now out of Loth's favor. So now they're vulnerable. Now this doesn't work like this works somewhat like college football rankings. If they wipe out the fourth house, that does not make them the fourth house. It makes them go up one on the rungs. They won't long be tenth, they'll be ninth. But then you have the risk of incurring the this is risky in any in any way you look at it. Yes, yes so you're going to run into Alabama. Then you're <laughs> well, that's the thing, and, and Alabama is <laughs> going to be looking for you and gunning for you, and they're going to be forming a game plan. Alabama in this scenario is House Bainry, first House Men to Baron Zan, and they are massively powerful. If they had chosen to take over Menzo Baronzan, they could do it. They have the manpower, they have the firepower. Their family is huge, and they have I don't know how many high priestesses that are daughters that have not formed gone to form their own house and gone against their mother. They stayed in the fold. Pretty unprecedented thing in Dro society. We'll get into that uh, because Matron Malice makes that connection with herself. She's like that seems to be unfair, you know. Actually, she has contempt, I think, for those daughters because he sees them as weak. I see that as strength in numbers, and it is a something that has served House Bainry for thousands of years. So, um, then we go back to, I think he's coming back to uh, House Stewart, quote, Halfway across the city, beyond the silver glowing balcony in the arched doorway 20 feet up the cavern's west wall, sat the principals of House Stewart and gathered to outline the final plans of the night's work. On the raised dais at the back of the small audience chamber sat venerable matron Malice, her belly swollen in the final hours of pregnancy. Flanking her in their places of, of honor were her three daughters, Maya, Virna, and the eldest Bryza, a newly ordained high priestess of Loth. I would be a big fan of Bryza. You'll see here in a second. Maya and Vera appeared as younger versions of their mother, slender and deceptively small, though possessing great strength. Bryza, though, hardly carried the family resemblance. She was big, huge by Dro standards, and rounded in the shoulders and hips. Those who knew Bryza well figured that her size was merely a circumstance of her temperament. A smaller body could not have contained the anger and brutal streak of House Orton's newest high priestess. Um, what they're going to do is they're coinciding this child's birth with the attack they're going to channel all that pain and rage into this mental attack against house devere it's really kind of a cool idea um and another thing they're going to it's going to be a boy child and they're going to sacrifice it to loth it's the third the every third son in drove society is sacrificed immediately to loth that's a that's a can you imagine you know how messed up is your society if you can take a child that you have just birthed and sacrifice it to some capricious goddess and not feel any, and feel good about it. They feel good about it. They feel it's a good thing. Like this is going to satiate her and we're, and we're going to move up in, you know, all these different ways. I mean, they're, they're, they're a monstrous society, aren't they? Quote, the child comes this night, Major Mouse explained to her anxious husband. We go no matter what Denon, what news Denon bears. It will be a boy child grown Bryza, making no effort to hide her disappointment. A third living son of House Stewart, to be fa- sacrificed to Loth, put in Zachnafine, a former tra- patron of the house who now held the important position of weapons master. I love Zachnafine. We'll get him to him later. 
The skilled drove fighter seemed quite pleased at the thought of sacrifice, as did Nalfine, the family's eldest son, who stood at Zack's side. Nalfine was the elder boy, and he needed no more competition beyond Denon within the ranks of House Steward. Um, they're just looking, they're basically looking out over what they're going to do, the battle plan, because they're getting it together. Zack Nafine, um, I don't know if I should reveal this, but everybody who's going to read this is going to find this out in the way. Zach Nafine is Dritt's father. The way it works is that there are no marriages in Drow society. Women take lovers when they want to, and they take whoever they want. They're usually among the commoners, so they can dispose of them when they're tired of them. Um, Zach Nafine is the weapon master of House Stewart, and he is maybe the most feared male in all of Men's of Baronzan. He has a reputation of being a complete badass, which is extremely earned, and we'll find this later. He's an awesome character, and I love him. Um, he is also, like his son, and then another daughter of his, his daughter is Virna. Maya and Bryza are not his daughters. Uh, Virna carries this this streak it, it might it might be an old i don't know what it is that makes him like have more compassion zach nafine hates dro society he hates it and he despises other dro he plays his part because he's a, he's afraid to leave the city he can't go in the underdog by himself it's a, it's and he's not a coward he just doesn't know what he'd do what is he supposed to do live as a hermit for the rest of his life and be because you have to understand that if you leave menzo baronzan not only are other dro going to chase you and try to kill you for the spider queen's favor especially if you blaspheme as he does but other races are out there to kill you because they hate you because of all the shit your people have done the dorgar hate you but for the fact that you are a direct competitor the all manner of monsters out there who hate anybody. They don't care. They'll eat anything because they're giant monsters. Um, you have basilisks. You have giant underdark crabs. You've got hook horrors, which is one of the original monsters ever in Dungeons and Dragons. Imagine a giant bird that's built like a gorilla with hooks at the end of its hands. It is a terrifying creature. It's it's its skin is essentially and a shell is stone. You cannot defeat them. They're massive and huge and they travel in packs. They are not lone creatures. Then you have creatures that aren't necessarily evil, but you are locked in wars with the Surf Nebel and the Deep Gnomes, who are one of my favorites. They aren't evil. They're actually a good race, but they're regular victims of the Drow. You know, that they build their cities as fortresses so they don't have to. And if they see a lone dro, it's not automatically that they're going to kill him, but it pretty much is at the same time. You know, they, they might ask his story and then kill him anyway. They're probably going to do that because they don't want the heat. You know, they don't want things like this motherfucker's getting chased by the city. We can't have him around. Even if we like him, we can't have him around. So that's what Zach Nefee would have to walk into. You know, he thinks he, he rather thinks, well. I'll just do this job, kill Dro when I want to, which I extremely like doing, and I get the mo- I get the choicest kills because I'm the best killer. That's what his role is in this society, and all the females are terrified of him. Um, even Bryza, who talks a big game in a second, when when her mother isn't around, she does some more careful stepping around Zach Nafine because he knows he she knows he could cut her apart and without a blank, it would not even be a fight. So. Um, then we have Denon coming back to the city. You can tell I love these books. I think yeah. <laughs> I can tell you're pretty stoked about. I this. mean, it's but it's interesting stuff. Um, Denon now is coming back towards House Stewart, and we get a description of uh, House Stewart. Um, he isn't pleased with it. Um, it's built 
Well, let's see, read the description. Quote. House de Worden, unlike the great unlike the great majority of the houses in Menzo Baranzan, did not stand free within groves of stalactites and stalagmites. The bulk of the structure within it was within a cave, and while this setup was indisputably defensible, Dinan found himself wishing that his family could show a bit more grandeur. Um, the only thing they have outside of their that is has any grandeur is they have a giant adamantine gate, which is you know adamantium. It's this unbreakable metal. Quote. The fence was adamantine, the hardest metal in all the world, and adorning it were a hundred weapon-wielding spider carvings, each ensorcelled with deadly gusts and wards. The mighty gate of House de Warden was the envy of many a drow house, but soon, so soon after viewing the spectacular houses in the mushroom grove, Denon could only find disappointment and look upon his own abode. That's typical dark elf The grass is always greener, isn't it? Um, as he's coming, um, Risen, who is the current patron of... Uh, Consort, I should say, of Mouch uh, approaches him, and he asks for the report, and you know if his mission was successful. Um, and then he goes to talk to uh, Matron Malice. Um, quote. The child comes this night, Matron Malice explained to her anxious husband. We go no matter what news didn't embarrass. It, well, we've already talked. We already discussed it. Sorry. Um, Denon is now walking across the uh, the Dorn compound, and there's no steps up. But then he evidences evidences uh, ability that all drone ovals have. Quote: No stairway led to the silvery balcony of House Dorn's second level. This too was a precautionary measure designed to segregate the leaders of the house from the rabble and the slaves. Drone nobles needed no stairs. Another manifestation of their innate ma- magical abilities allowed them the power of levitation. With hardly a conscious thought to the act, Denon drifted easily through the air and dropped onto the balcony. Um. Then he does something that's uh, not advisable. I kind of like Denon. Um, he is. They betray him as I, I think he's he enjoys Dro society, but I think had he gotten been gotten as a younger elf, maybe he could have been turned away from his ways. Um, he's not Zach Nafine's kid. That's obvious. But um, I think that he does have a streak in him that would they be construed as good. You know, he, 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 he evidences more loyalty, I think, than the, than the common drow, which is a failing among their people. But he also, one of the things he is, is, is audacious. And, um, he comes to the, uh, the chapel where, you know, the female members of the family are matron mouse and bursts through the door and knocks aside two female guards and, uh, pisses off his sisters. And just like any, any, uh, even humans, Siblings like pissing each other off, and Denon loves to piss off his sisters, particularly Bryza, even though he's terrified of her. Quote, as much as he enjoyed testing limitations of his inferior station as a male, Denon could not ignore the threatening dances of Verna, Maya, and Bryza. Being female, glances, I think that meant to be glances. Being female, they were bigger and stronger than Denon and had trained all their lives in the use of wicked, dro clerical weapon, powers or weapons. Denon watched as enchanted extensions of the clerics, the dreaded snake-headed whips, snake-headed whips on his sister's belt began writhing in anticipation of the punishment they would exact. The handles were adamantine and ordinary enough, but the whips' lengths and multiple heads were living serpents. Bryza's whip, in particular, a wicked six-headed device, danced and squirmed, tying itself into knots around the belt that held it. Bryza was always the quickest to punish. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty awful weapon. <laughs> I mean, imagine that—a living snake or multiple ones on a rod in somebody's belt—and they'll whip a commoner male to death 
for no other reason. They just want to do it. They don't care. Your life means nothing to them, particularly if you're male. Um, like I said, Denon is walking a pretty deadly line there. Um, Malice kind of likes Denon, like the way he is. You know, she chuckles and likes, you know, the, the way he sets things up. I think he admires him a little bit. Um, they discuss that, you know, that the the punishment that Alton Avir will be killed and that will complete their raid. Uh, then she tells him to go to the meld and um, quote, the four drow males moved to kneel before the matron and her daughters, risen to Malice, Zachnafin to Bryza, Nalfin to Maya, and Denon to Virna. The clerics chanted in unison, placing one hand delicately on the forehead of the respected soldier, turning it into his passions, tuning into his passions. You know your place is Matron Malice, said when the ceremony was completed. She grimaced through the pain of another contraction. Let our work begin. Um, they really don't have um, they have a, a description of uh, malice kind of later you know they 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 you they talk about the fact that she's tiny she's barely five feet tall um, and that must mean Denon is extremely small himself but they kind of go back and forth with that um, because Verna and Maya look like Malice, and, and they said, stated that Denon is smaller than, and weaker than they are. Um, but then sometimes Denon can be a very formidable fighter. I think that sometimes in writing that writers you know, get swept up in something and kind of forget those rules they're writing about. I don't know if Ari Salvatore did that or if I'm reading it wrong, but that's the impression that I get. Um, but... Uh, Malice is, you know, this extremely beautiful. She's beautiful, and they describe her as beautiful, full-lipped, um, sexy. Even in her fifth century, she's she's not old, but she's not young. Um, and then now they're preparing for war. Uh, as I said, Z- Bryza was shitty to Zach Nefim, but now she's on the uh, balcony with him, and um, now she has a like I said, she's a little bit careful stepping around the the weapon master of House Stewart and. Um, She's doing the most powerful spells to uh, ensure his uh, invisibility, and it's a pretty cool spell, but we have a little uh, exchange here. Quote, have you the articles Bryza inquired, showing Zach considerably more respect than when she had than she had when Major Malice sat protectively at her side? Zach was only a male, a commoner allowed to don the family name as his own because he sometimes served Matron Malice in a husbandly manner and had once been the patron of the house. Still, Bryza feared to anger him. Zach was the weapons master of House Jordan, a tall and muscular male, stronger than most females, and those who had witnessed his fighting wrath considered him among the finest warriors of either sex in all of men's barons and. Besides Bryza and her mother, both high priestesses of the Spider Queen, Zach Nefine, with his unrighteous of swordsmanship was do was do Erden's trump yeah he's he's feared uh, seeing him coming at you in in uh Benzo baron's and that's you've signed your death warrant you're a paid for some bitch if he comes after you <laughs> um then um Bryza is doing this spell and it's a cool spell because I, I remember the the dark lc and infravision so it's these cooling like almost snowflakes i, I think it's described as and it's you know, covering Zach Nefine to make him invisible to, uh, to infravision. Um, quote, Zach felt the frosty sprinkles falling down and permeating his clothes and armor. Even, the, even his, uh, that doesn't make sense. 
See, sometimes there's some typos in these. Until he and all of his possessions had cooled to uniform temperature in hue. Zack hated the magical chill and felt, felt as he imagined death would feel, but he knew that under the influence of the wan sprinkles he was, to the heat-sensing eyes of the creature of the Underdark, as gray as common stone, unremarkable and undetectable. Then she conjures a uh, an arrow elemental to carry him away, which is a cool spell in itself. An elemental is a living, you know, a water elemental would be a living geyser of water and air you know earth elemental which which we will get into which are way cooler than uh, air elementals which is kind of look like a slightly humanoid shaped column of yellow air i mean it's just but it's a it's a very powerful spell um and then she tells him good hunting zach nafine loves doing this job because his job is to kill the uh matron and all of her daughters you know in the uh, in the house of Vere. this is his job because it's the most dangerous job, and he's the one most suited to it. Um, then the house of Erdin is now on the march for to go to war. Keep in mind that every house in Menzo Berenzan is watching this, but it's not actually happening because they're observers. This is none of their affair. But they're all watching it, essentially eating popcorn from their balconies. Like this is going to be some good shit. Watch this, you know. Probably bets are exchanging hands. Like, I bet you House of Erden can't do it. They're 10th house. And then somebody who knows House of Erden, like, they've got all that. They've got that lunatic big daughter. They've got Zach Nafine. I'll take that bet. And you're a lunatic for making that bet in the first place. Um, I would imagine it'd be like a discussion of college football earlier, as I said. You know, a 10th ranked team who has all the firepower versus a 4th ranked team who is kind of on down on their look now. They've lost a game or two, but they're still strong. That's how I see it. And it, it, it would be interesting to see, of course. Even I'd like to see that. Um, quote, there could be no doubt for onlookers a drow house was on a march to war. This was not an everyday event in Menzo Baron's hand, but neither was it unexpected. At least once every decade, a house decided this position within the city hierarchy could be improved by another house's elimination. It was a risky proposition for all the nobles of the victim house had to be disposed of quickly and quietly. If even one survived to lay an accusation upon the perpetrator, the attacking house would be eradicated by Menzo Baron's hand's merciless system of justice, quote unquote. Um, if the raid was executed to devious perfection, though, no recourse would be forthcoming. All the city, even the ruling council of the top eight matron mothers, would secretly applaud the attackers for their courage and intelligence, and no war would ever be said of the incident. For all intents and purposes, that house never existed after this. And we know that the way this is going to go. This is the beginning of the book. Um, and we flash back to Matron Malice is now in the middle of giving birth. She's in labor, and they are using this, quote, Halfway across Menza Baron's end, Matron Malice, her daughters, and four of the house's common clerics were gathered in Loth's unholy circle of eight. They ringed an idol of their wicked city, a gemstone carving of a drove-faced spider, and called to Loth for aid in their struggles. The select group chanted in unison, combining their energies into a single offensive spell. A moment later, when Virna, mentally linked to Denon, understood that the first attack group was in position, the Duran Circle of Eight sent the first insinuating waves of mental energy into the rival house. Then we fly, flash back to Matron Genefe. This is, again, very cinematic. You imagine this scene, and then it flashes back to the house being attacked. Quote, 
Matron Guinefay, her two daughters, and the five principal clerics of the common troops of House de Vere huddled together in the darkened anteroom of the five stalagmite house's main chapel. They had gathered, in solemn, they had gathered there in solemn prayer every night since Matron Guinefay had learned that she had fallen into lost disfavor. Guinefay understood how vulnerable her house remained until she could find a way to appease the Spider Queen. There were 66 other houses in Men's and fully 20 of which might dare to attack House de Vere at such an obvious disadvantage. The eight clerics were anxious now somewhat suspecting that this night would be eventful. Guinefay felt it first, a chilling blast of confusion, of confusing perceptions that caused her to stutter over her prayer of forgiveness. The other clerics of House de Vere glanced nervously at the matron's uncharacteristic slip of words looking for confirmation. We are under attack, Guinefay breathed to them, her head already pounding with a dull ache under the growing assault of the formal clerics of House de Warden. Um, It's pretty... I mean, this is this is a mark of uh, Malice's uh, really kind of brilliance. This no one they stress to you that no one has tried this before, because these spells take such concentration and such single minded of purpose. The pain, especially to a slim hipped dark elf giving birth, which can sometimes be deadly. A lot of people would hear that and be like, what are you insane? That's, you know, you're going to lose. That's not going to work. But Matra Malice is no, she's a singular uh, draw elf matron. She's, she's one that can make this work and she does make it work. Um, then the attack begins, quote, they halted their approach on cue. This is the Doran army, though. Though, remembering one final task set out to them, every drow, noble or commoner, possessed certain magical abilities. Bringing forth a globe of darkness as Denon had done to the bugbears in the street earlier that night came easily to even the lowliest of the dark elves. So it went now, with 60 Doran soldiers blotting out the perimeter of House Devere above the mushroom fence and ball after ball of blackness. For all their stealth and precautions, House Doran knew that many eyes were watching the raid. Witnesses were not too much of a problem. They could not or would not care enough to identify the attacking house. But custom and rules demand that certain attempts at secrecy be enacted, the etiquette of row warfare. In the blink of a red glowing eye, House de Vere became, to the rest of the city, a dark blot of men's and barons in its landscape. Um, as I said, you know, everybody's watching this. Everybody knows what's going on. You know, it's no secret. But again, I like this, the fact that they have this ridiculous etiquette that it has to be hidden from people's eyes. You know, but I'm, I'm sure some people have ways of looking through this. They have a have to have a spell or something that would dispel that so they can look at what's going on. You know, it would just make sense. Um, back to Zach Nafine. Quote, High above the cluster, cluster of House Devere, Zach Nafine rested comfortably in the current arms of Bryza's aerial servant, watching the drama unfold. From this vantage, Zach could see within the ring of darkness and could hear within the ring of magical silence. Denon's troops, the first drove soldiers in, had met resistance at every door and were being beaten badly. It's not going good for him. Um, but that's kind of like a feint. They know it wouldn't go good for them. They're, they're outnumbered um, in large part, but that's not the where the push is coming from. Um, and it, Zach Navina is included in that quote. Zach stretched the incessant chill out of his arms and willed the aerial servant to action. Down he, on, down he plummeted on his windy bed, and he fell free the last few feet to the terrace along the top chambers of the central pillar. At once, two guards, one a female, rushed out to greet him. They hesitated in confusion, though, trying to sort out the true form of this unremarkable blade, gray blur too long. They had never heard of Zach Nafine Doerd, and they didn't know that death was upon them. That's a bit much, but I still love it. Zach whip flashed out, catching and gashing the female's throat, while his other hand wor- walked his sword through 
through a series of masterful thrusts and parries that put the male off balance. Zack finished both in a single blurring movement, snapping the whip and twined female from the terrace with a twist of his wrist and spinning a kick into the male's face that likely, likewise dropped him to the cavern floor. He's a badass. Um, then, though, something happened that he didn't. A giant spider busts out of a concealment. Um, quote, Zack dived to his belly and kicked out under the thing, spinning into a roll that plunges sword deep into the monster's bulbous body. Sticky fluids gush out over the weapons master, and the spider shuddered to a quick death. Then he gets back into a cubby and pulls the spider back on top of him so he won't be seen. And then he tells Malice, you know, now's the time. Um Quote, Malice gathered her breath and her courage. She could feel the tingling of the spell as clearly as the pain of the birth. To her daughter standing around the idol, staring at her in disbelief, she appeared as a red blur of heated fury, streaking sweat lines that shone as brightly as, as the heat of boiling water. I'm not going to say these magic words. Um, I'll just describe. Abracadabra. <laughs> One of them is a Beck, so that's kind of there. Um she felt the hot tear of her skin. The sudden slippery releases the baby's head pushed through the sudden ecstasy of birthing. She pushed away all the agony and a final explosion of magical power that knocked even the clerics of her own house from their feet. Carried on the thrust of Matra Malice's exultation, the Dweemer thundered in the chapel of House Devere, shattered the gemstone idol of Loth. I can't, can't see Loth being happy with that. Uh, however, sundered the, the double doors into heaps of twisted metal and threw Matron Guinefe and her overmatched subordinates to the floor. And then... Here comes Zachnafine, basically doing mop up. Quote, a snap of his whip was the only explanation he offered as they, you know, they kind of looked at him and see, who are you? As he smashed a tiny ceramic globe at his feet, the sphere shattered, dropping out a pellet that Bryza had enchanted for just such occasions, a pellet glowing with the bright, brightness of daylight. Can you imagine living your life in darkness and then being subjected to, I mean, I wake up after, I used to wake up after a hangover and it would hurt. Imagine being, living your life in darkness and that happening. It would be agonizing. For Isaac Coast, accustomed to blackness, tuned into heat emanations, the intrusion of such radiance came in a blinding flash of agony. The cleric's cries of pain only aided Zack in his systematic, systematic trek around the room, and he smiled wildly every time, under his hood every time he felt his sword bite into drove flesh. He heard the beginning of his spell across the way, now everybody listen because this is awesome, and knew that one of the Deveres had really co- recovered enough from the assault to be dangerous. The weapon master did not need his eyes to aim, however, and the crack of his whip took Bacon, Matron Guinefe's tongue right out of her mouth. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> that dude is no one to be fucked with. Um, we flash back to the Duron house now, and Bryza has the baby, and they're getting ready to sacrifice him. Quote, Bryza placed a newborn on the back of the spider idol and lifted ceremonial dagger, pausing to admire its cruel workmanship. His hilt was a spider's body sporting eight legs, barbed so as to appear furred, but angled down to serve his blades. Bryza lifted the instrument above the baby's chest. Name the child, she implored her mother. The spider queen will not accept the sacrifice until the child is named. Matron Mouse lowered her head, trying to fathom her daughter's meaning. The matron mother had thrown everything into the moment of the spell and the birth, and she was now barely coherent. Name the child, Bryza commanded, anxious to feed her hungry goddess. Here's something that happens, though, and this would horrify us. Um, saves this baby's life, of course, because, you know, it's a plot point, but it's a masterfully done plot point. Um, now, Fien, the oldest son, and Denon, the second son, are standing on the balcony, and the the, the fighting is pretty much over. Machin Genefe and her daughter are dead. You know, uh, I would imagine that most of the commoner soldiers of House of Ear have flipped loyalties, which they have, and are now fighting fighting in the Durden side, because that happens a lot. Uh, The commoners, oh no. You know, it goes both ways. 
the nobles have no loyalty to their commoners. The commoners have zero loyalty to the nobles. So when something goes against them, they'll just say, hey, I'm in for this to happen the whole, whole time and turn and stab a noble. You know, it might earn you death, but it might probably earn you a quick one. But it might earn you a place among the commoners of House to Erden. Probably does. A lot of time it does. Um, Denon uh, looks over his brother's shoulder and says, alert, thinking, you know, there's somebody attacking him. Quote, now Thane re- reacted immediately, spinning to face the danger at his back, only to put the true danger at his back. For even, even as now Thane realized the deception, Denon's sword slipped into his spine. Denon put his head to his brother's shoulder and pressed his cheek to now watching the red sparkle of heat leave his brother's eyes. Too quickly for anyone to take note, Denon teased, echoing his, brother, echoing his brother's early words. He dropped the lifeless form to his feet. Now Denon boy, Denon is elder boy of House Stewarden, and now Fiend be damned. Um, then there comes a discussion. Uh, whoever was linked to now Fiend, um, Maya, it was the, the daughter Maya, uh, knows now Fiend is dead. So now Driss is no longer the the third child. He's the second. So they decide to keep him. I don't know why they did that. Um, so now we have uh, Dritz. Dritz Stewart has been born. This is the circumstances of his birth. It's a pretty. I think he would. I think he would know this is how it happened. I mean, he's been told actually that this is how his birth happened. That'd be a pretty horrifying thing to think to find out how evil your family is and how bad they'll kill each other when you find out one brother had killed the other, you know, to save your life. And Denon actually tells him that he's like, "I saved your life because I killed Nalfine." He's like, "You killed her own brother." He's like, "Yeah, well, I mean, that's the way things work." Drist is that's one one thing about his. His childhood, he's very slow on the uptake on these things because he's got a good heart. He doesn't understand these things. But he proved himself to be valuable. So, you know, they keep him alive. Um, then we have Zach Nafine walking through the shattered remnants of House Devere, and uh, something terrible happens that haunts him. Quote, uh, there's a, I should, you know, the dialogue being spoken here is from a group of uh Doerden, basically mop-up artists, they're killing all the nobles. Quote, in there, she declared, pointing to a woman a panel at the base of the wall. The soldiers jumped to it like a pack of ravenous wolves and tore through the secret door. Inside the hidden cubby huddled the children of House Devere. These were nobles, not commoners, and could not be taken alive. Zack quickened his pace to get beyond the scene, but he heard vividly the children's helpless screams as the hungry Doerden soldiers finished their job. Zack found himself in a run now. He rushed around a bend in the hallway, nearly bowling over Denon and Risen. Um... Then Denon kind of tells him that he killed Nalfine and Zach Nafine's disgusted, but he's not, he's not surprised. I mean, he knows what life he lives, but it really, he's a tormented character. And this is, and here's something very Shakespearean every now and then he'll throw in a soliloquy like Shakespeare did. And it is, it is overdone. It's overblown, but it really is good. And it reflects the character. And I think in reading it now, years later and having gotten that out of my system where I want to dis- distance myself from, you know, action from fantasy adventure. I kind of like it. And this is Agnafine talking quote. What place is this? This that, that is what place is this? That is my world. What dark coils, my spirit embodied. He whispered the angry disclaimer that had always been a part of him in light. I see my skin is black in darkness. It glows white in the heat of the rage. I cannot dismiss. Would that I had the courage to depart this place or this life to stand or to stand openly against the wrongness of the world of these, my kin to seek an existence that does not run afoul to those 
run afoul to that to that which I believe and to that which I hold dear. Faith is truth. Zach Nafindo Erden, I am called, yet a draw I am not, by choice, by deed. Let them discover this being that I am, then. Let them rain their wrath upon those old shoulders already burdened by the hopelessness of Benzo Berenzan. Ignoring the consequences, the weapon master rose to his feet and yelled, Benzo Berenzan, what the, what hell are you? A moment later, when no answer echoed back out of the quiet city, Zach flexed the remaining chill of Bryce's wand from his weary muscles. He found some comfort as he patted the whip on his belt, the instrument that had taken the tongue from the mouth of the matron mother. Um... He, you know, even Malice understands that Zach Nafine likes killing Gro. Um, she tolerates his blasphemy, and it is blasphemy because he's doesn't make his he does he doesn't make his views on Gro society secret. He says it in in public and basically tells people to go fuck themselves. He's like, "What are you going to do? I'm Zach Nafine. I'll cut you down. Shut your mouth." None of them have the courage to challenge him, even in a group, because he'll kill all of them. So they just kind of shut up and let him do his thing. And and I think even Loth finds that funny. You know, she's like, it pisses him off all so bad, but he's such a badass and he kills so many of these people. You know, that's, I always found that to be the way anyway, that uh, he was just too much of a badass for anybody to challenge. Um, and it's true. Um, then we go, Remember, Alton DeVere is now the lone member of the DeVere family left, and the faceless one is now going to try to pursue his his uh, his agenda to kill him for Matron Malice getting paid with a jar of salve. Quote, this is Alton, Alton DeVere speaking. Quote, when he had first received the summons, Alton feared that he had somehow failed one of his lessons. That could be a fatal mistake in sorcery. Alton was close to graduation, but the dis- disdain of a single master could put an end to that. He had done quite well in his lessons with the faceless one. He even believed that this mysterious master favored him. Could this call be a simply uh, a courtesy of congratulations on his impending graduation? No. Unlikely, Alton realized against his hopes. Master of the Drug Academy did not often congratulate students. That is a massive understatement. Quote, Alton then heard quiet chanting and noticed that the master was in the midst of spellcasting. Something cried out is very wrong to him now. Something about this whole situation did not fit the strict ways of the Academy. Alton set his feet firmly and tense his muscles, following the advice of the motto that had been drilled into the thoughts of every student of the Academy, the precept that kept Drowell's alive in a society so devoted to chaos. Be prepared. He basically, he's a, dark elves are resistant to magic if you stand there and take the spell there is a better than even chance that you will survive it because it'll just roll over you because you're a magical being yourself that's what he's going to try to do doesn't quite work out for him quote the doors exploded before him showering the room with stone splinters and throwing massage back against the wall massage is uh this another noble boy who's working in sorcery he's in the uh hunet hunet family he felt the show well worth both the inconvenience and the new bruise on his shoulder when Alton DeVere scrambled out of the room. The student's back and left arm trailed wisps of smoke and the, and the most exquisite expression of terror and pain that Massage had ever seen was etched on the DeVere noble's face. Um, I highlighted a bunch of this, um, and it is good stuff, but it's not pertinent really to the main story. I mean, it's a side story and an interesting one. Basically, the the gist of it is, is that uh, as the faceless one is getting ready to pronounce his doom and kill out on Devere as he's as he's been uh, as he's been bought off to do, Massage shoots him in the back with a crossbow. 
Because he hates the facials one because basically he treats him like a sweeping boy. He's like, sweep that floor up and that's all you're fit for. Go get your shine box. Basically, that's essentially how he treats him. So Massage is from the Hunet family and they're a powerful house. I think they're sixth house at this point. Um, maybe they might even be fifth. I can't remember. You know, the, the particulars escape me. And we'll get into that. But um, there is an entertaining passage where Alton sees something he's never seen before, a mirror. Mirrors would be useless in the underdark because you, there is no light to reflect it so he thinks that my and he's never seen a mirror before because he thinks it's some kind of magical object and he takes off running to dive through it maybe it'll take him to a different plane of existence and his head crashes through and hits the wall he said maybe it was just a mirror and he falls down now he's got seven years of bad luck <laughs> well not essentially because uh after he does that uh he hatches a genius plan um, he says after the faceless one is dead, Massage is going to kill him too. He's like, well, I can write this off as a a uh, flight between an apprentice and a master. It's happened before, and you both died in the conflict. I'm just there to watch it, and I'm going to I'm going to benefit from this because that asshole is dead. Basically, that's what he's doing. But then Alton has the idea to save his own life. He's nothing if not resourceful, as all Dro are and devious. He said, here's what you do. Get some acid. Burn my face off. I'll pretend I'm the faceless one. You have a powerful ally within the, the within this. That's a good idea. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's desperate. But he's and um, and uh, massage agrees. We get one other thing too, the first introduction or the uh, prelude or the uh, foreshadowing of the of uh, Dritz's companion that he's been with since the beginning, a uh, astral plane panther, a giant panther. Because panthers are usually, you know, a couple hundred pounds. Her name's Gwen Huvar, and Gwen Huvar is easily six to eight hundred pounds. Of giant panther you know you he she's in most pictures with dritz um it belonged to massage hunette at first so then we get a little bit of taste of that but then um we flash back and the the doerd women are looking at this baby um most of them in distaste brisa really wanted to kill it um but then they noticed something odd about him quote look at his eyes veerna whispered to maya as they examined the newest member of house doerden truly the babe's eyes were remarkable though the child had been out of the womb for less than an hour the pupils of his orbs darted back and forth inquisitively while they showed the expected radiant glow of eyes seeing in the infrared spectrum the familiar redness was tinged by a shade of blue giving them a, giving them a violent hue um Then they wonder if he's blind. Um, he's not. Um, and then they, uh, Matron Malice says, well, let me, let's see how his eyes look in the lights. So they have a candle there and they, and his eyes are purple in light too. Then we have something that was weird. You know, I would probably say that Dro Elf Society would be incestuous, but here's a part that's always struck me as weird. Virna who is actually Dritt's brother, full brother. Quote, Virna gasped audibly when she looked upon her tiny brother and his striping, striking lavender orbs. He is your brother, Matron Mouse reminded her, viewing Virna's gasp as a hint of what might come. When he grows older and those eyes pierce you, so remember on your life that he is your brother. Basically, Virna probably would have banged her brother. Um, but then she's given, maybe this is a punishment for that. She's given the job of raising, of word weaning, basically, Dritzt, young Dritzt. So um, 
Bryza had offered, but the only thing Bryza wanted to do was beat this kid until she until he was a shell of nothing. So for her own gratification, Bryza is a pretty awful, awful character. Um, later on, I kind of admire her in a way for something she almost does, and um, but. It's nothing good, I can assure you, but it's something that I really admire her for because it showed a lot of strength of character, but um, even in an awful way. But then my, uh, Malice knows that's not a good idea. Um, now they're down. Now Fiend was training to be a wizard, so she has an idea that Dritz will be a wizard, but he has to be raised first. So she gives the job to uh, to Verna. Quote. This is to to uh, Bryzo first. Quote, you are a high priestess. You have other duties more important than word weaning a male child. Then to Verna, she said, the babe is yours. Do not disappoint me in this. The lessons you teach Driss will reinforce your own understanding of our ways. This exercise at mothering, quote unquote, will add you in your quest to become a high priestess. She let Verna take a moment to view the task in a more positive light. Then her tone became unmistakably threatened once again. It may aid you, but surely can destroy you. Um. this is going back and forth with the uh, with the uh, discussion between Massage and um, and Alton DeVere you know the now faceless one Alton DeVere um, after this though we have a pretty cool moment Matron Bain Ree sends a a conveyance well, let's get into this too it's a giant blue glowing disc I put this in a note because I read this again. I, I've read this book three times in preparation over the past two weeks for this to form opinions so I could just talk about this. Menzo Berenzan, as I said, would be to, especially to people on the world of Toril who are essentially medieval in so many ways, would seem so advanced. Their tech is magic. Magic in Kryn is not commonplace. It's more commonplace than it is in the world of Game of Thrones and much more commonplace than it is in the world of uh, Tad Williams books where you can even debate that things aren't even magic in that world because the Sithi, as we've discussed before, are aliens. But anyway, um, their tech is like the best example I've always come up with when I discuss tech in fantasy is the game The Breath of the Wild, which is the Legend of Zelda game. You have the ancients, quote-unquote, who are essentially elves without calling them elves, and they have these ancient places that are magic-based, but they're like machines and stuff, too, and they're powered by magic in a way. That's how I see Menzo Barons in, in large part. It's technology, but they don't have electricity, so it's powered by magic. And it's very commonplace to them. Like they wouldn't be they they are not impressed by magic weapons unless like they're like everybody's got that. Who cares? It cheapens it. But I think that Arya Salvatore does it in the right way here. Where yes, at times it becomes wearisome where you talk about magic weapons and stuff like that, and you think about the larger larger picture. Like well, then that just cheapens it, makes it shitty. That's true if you're trying to write something like Game of Thrones. Imagine everybody has magic on Game of Thrones. Now it's not interesting at all. I mean, because then it's just, you know, the magic started to come more in place with the the Red Priests and all that stuff, and the dragons were bringing magic back in the world and the others. But it was so sinister because it's so unknown. They're basically like us, and then magic is thrown at them. They're like, this is insane. How can this be? In this world, it's like, this is Tuesday. A glowing disc is picking me up to 
have a conversation with the leading matron mother in the city. This is from Matron Bainry is bringing. And the reason she's bringing the, her this disc, of course, is to congratulate her. Quote, four cycles of Narbondale, four days later, a glowing disc floated up the mushroom-lined path to the spider-covered gate of House to Orton. The sentries watched it from the windows of the outer towers and from the compounds that hovered patiently three feet off the ground. Word came to the ruling family only seconds later. This throws them into some uh, into some paranoia you know they're paranoid people they think that maybe a devere has escaped their notice they think that maybe somebody's going to bring an accusation against them matron malice says that's not the way it works we wouldn't know about that that just kind of happens um she said this is just matron bainry um basically going to congratulate her and she gets on the disc quote Malice's guess about an escort was correct. She said there were probably an escort from House Bainry, as, as opposed to getting a, an escort from her own house, which Zach Nefine had offered. She kind of out of care for him. He didn't care anything about Malice. He's like, I don't care if you die. You know, you're a piece of shit like the rest of them. <laughs> um, quote, as soon as the disc swept down from the pathway to the Doe Erden compound, 20 soldiers of House Bainry, all female, moved out from conceal- concealment along the sides of the boulevard. Remember, women are larger and stronger, though, of course, they would be female. They formed a defensive diamond around the guest matron mother. The guard at each point of the formation wore black robes emblazoned on the back with a large purple and red spider design, the robes of high, pe- high priestess. Um, I like this part. It describes matron mouse's character. She's, she is impressed by this and even a little intimidated, but she does not let that show. She's in her whole glory. Now she has the, she is, was the 10th house. Now the Knights house who took down the fourth house everybody's noticing that'd be like West Virginia dispatching, you know, a fourth rank Notre Dame. People are going to look at you like they're tougher than ever. I thought they were, you know what I mean? Um, then we did a description of the Bainry compound, which I always thought was really cool. Um, very modern sounding, of, of course, uh, as well. Quote, she rolled her eyes again a few minutes later when the group approached the ruling house. House Bainry encompassed 20 tall and majestic, majestic slagmites, all interconnected with gracefully sweeping and arching bridges and parapets. Magic and fairy fire glowed from a thousand separate se- sculptures and a hundred regally adorned guardsmen paced about in perfect formations. Even more striking were the intense structures, inverse structures, sorry. The 30 smaller stalactites of house bainery they hung down from the ceiling of the cavern their roots lost in the high darkness some of them connected tip to tip with stalagmite mounds while others hung freely like poised spears ringing balconies curving up like the edge edging of a screw had been built along the length of all of these glowing with an under overabundance of magic and highlighted design magic too was the fence that connected the bases of the outer stalagmites encircling the whole of the compound. It was a giant web, silver, silver against the general blue of the rest of the outer compound. Some said it had been a gift from Loth herself, with iron-strong strands as thick as the drow elf's arm. Anything touching Bainry's fence, even the sharpest row weapons, would simply stick fast until the matron mother willed the fence to let it free. It could even hold a giant. Giants couldn't rip it loose. Um, and then she goes into the chapel, and is even more impressed quote the sights beyond the great doors to the chapel did not disappoint her a central altar dominated the place with a row of benches spiraling out on several dozen circuits to the perimeter of the great hall two thousand drove could sit there with room to stretch statues and aisles too numerous to count stood all about the place glowing in a quiet black light in the air in the air high above the altar loomed a gigantic glowing image a red and black illusion that slowly and continually shifted between the forms of a spider and a beautiful drove female that would strike me as something very blade runner-esque this giant you know hologram essentially is what it is it's an illusion but it's a hologram that's all it is um 
because essentially the things are the same thing. One of them's created by light. One of them's created by magic. But anyway, um, uh, and then we have a conversation. Uh, but then a character steps in. I wanted to discuss this because this is the some of the descri- describes some of the world that the drow uh, live in. One of the creatures that she uh, encounters is a an illithid or a mind flayer. Quote. Before Malice took a step toward the stairs to the altar, her newest escort stepped out from the shadows. Malice scowled openly when she saw the thing, a creature known as an illithid, a mind flare. It stood about six feet tall, fully a foot taller than Malice, most of the difference being the result of the creature's enormous head. Glistening with slime, the head resembled an octopus with pupilless, milky white eyes. These mind flares are... They uh, they are on Kryn too. They're not mentioned much. There is a degenerate race of mind flayers who crashed in Taladus uh, in the jungles and became the Yagol, who are these physically larger than other mind flayers. Uh, their psionic abilities aren't as developed, and they're and they can deliver powerful punches. Illithids are wimps; they can't really fight, um, but they do have considerable psionic powers and mind powers that can control anybody. Like they, nobody can resist their. You know, intrusions. They can make you do whatever you want to do. Um, we'll get into in the in the next book in Exile. There's a big part with mind flayers, and their society is is alien, and disgusting, and it's really kind of cool. It's a really cool part of the book. Um, of course, I think this one is from that settlement. Um, his name is uh, Methyl. <laughs> Meth. That's funny. Um, Bainry explains. Uh, you know, that's her friend and all this stuff. And that's a powerful friend to have, you know, mind flayers are, you know, even, even the drone know how powerful they are. They're like that. That's an extra planar creature and they can do whatever they want. Extra planar as means they're, they, they exist on another plane of existence too. And they can go back and forth anytime they want. Um, and we get a description of matron Bainry. Quote, Malice had all that she could handle in hiding her t- contempt for Matron Bainry. Malice was old, nearly 500, but Matron B- Bainry was ancient. Her, her eyes had seen the rise and fall of millennium by some accounts, though Drow rarely lived past their seventh and not, certainly not their eighth century. While Drow normally did not show their age, Malice was as beautiful and vibrant now as she had been on her 100th birthday. Matron Bainry, Bainry was withered and worn. The wrinkles surrounding her mouth resembled a spider's web, and she could hardly keep the heavy lids of her eyes from drooping altogether. Matron Bainry should be dead, Malice noted but she still lives matron brainery seeming to so beyond her time of life was also pregnant and do only a few 10 days that's pretty um that's one of the strengths of her house is that she's fecund she's she's fertile and she has lots of children and um like as i said before they don't leave their house they stay at the house and uh, use their services in the service of house brainery um I think that Loth keeps them in place because it helps the structure of the thing to keep make sure it doesn't go completely out of control because then it's not entertaining anymore. It'd be like a, a storyline in wrestling that just goes crazy, and then because of its sheer craziness, it just isn't interesting anymore, uh, like the Shockmasters, you know, just complete chaos. But um, that is dealt with later in a really awesome way, like I said, in Siege of Darkness, so we'll discuss that. Um, But then the, the conversation they have is basically a, a congratulations to Malice for her for her form you know formidable formidable nature and her destruction of House Devere and she asks about House Devere Matron Mainry does and Malice in typical Drew fashion says who and then Matron says Matron Matron Base is of course great that's you know good that you said that in that way because they no longer exist so they never existed. 
their family is wiped from the and you're not allowed to speak of them in public or even in polite society. It's considered extremely rude to mention a, a extinguished house in polite company. Um, but then we have at the end, while Malice knows why she was brought there. Quote, still, when she was back on the disc and floating out through the compound past the grandest and strongest house in all of Menza Baranzan, Malice was not smiling. In the face of such an open display of power, the, the, she could not forget that Matron Bainery's purpose in summoning her had been twofold, to privately and cryptically congratulate her on her perfect coup and to vividly remind her not to get too ambitious. That's the, I love that part. It is very mafia, isn't it? To bring somebody in and say, that's a great job you did being a scumbag. But you better not think about being a scumbag with me because I'm the biggest scumbag and I'll wipe you out. That's essentially what Matron Bainery was doing is like, that's great that you did that, but you're not, you're still not powerful enough to deal with me, which at some point is debatable. I mean, The Doerdens have a real Corleone. Um, I, I've, I'm not con- totally unconvinced that Ari Salvatore didn't incorporate some of the Corleones into him. The Corleones weren't the most powerful family in of the five families in in The Godfather, but they at one point took on all the five families and were winning. You know, Sonny had become a wartime uh, Don and was and was doing well. He wasn't good at peacetime Don, but he was really like shellacking all the major five families and they were really starting to get word like man we can't beat these guys and they're supposed to be a smaller family i think that would be part of the the thing if house Stewart had to take on house bainery it would not be a knockout punch immediately they would really bloody at least bloody bainery's nose be like shit they're tougher than we thought they were it's gonna be a tough nut to crack you know so especially having malice and briza and um and and zach nafine you know all those to deal with um then we get, uh, we're back to Verna. Verna has now, uh, we flash forward. She has been raising um, uh, Dritz for five years. Quote, for five long years, Verna v- devoted almost every waking moment to the care of baby Dritz. In Drove society, this was not so much a nurturing time as an indoctrinating time. The child had to learn basic motor and language skills, as did children of all the intelligent races. But a Drove elf had to be grilled on the precepts that bound the chaotic Drove society together. Basically, you know, I'm not going to go into this in great detail. Um, but basically just being told that you're a male, you're inferior, you have no, you have virtually no rights in Drove society, you need to remember that, blah, 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 all that crap. Um, Virna in this passage is revealed as being very much Zach Nafine's daughter. Um, I feel kind of bad for her because she was born a female. Had she been born a male like Dritz, she might very well have turned out like him. She has a soft streak. She, there's a point, and I will read this passage where she feels tender feelings towards Dritz and she's trying to stamp those out, you know, and she feels like it's blasphemy because in really in their society, it is, it is blasphemous to feel anything for anybody. It is blasphemous, especially for a boy child who has not proved his worth yet. They could have slit his throat and be done with it. If, if it had been the spider queen's command at any time, he has no worth at this point. Um, but he is a, well, I should put that differently. He has no, he has inherent worth or potential worth. If he'd been a commoner child, a commoner boy, he has no worth. But since he's a noble, maybe they can do something with him. He could be a tool of some kind, basically. There is no love lost between, you know, there's a 
Dress himself said in one of the passages that a, a drow mother would kill a child just as easily she nursed at her own breast as some other some other person's child, and that's true. Um, we get uh, there's a long passage I want to read here uh, where she's trying to instruct, and we get a de- description of how intelligent and uh, ahead of his years Drist is. She's trying to. Um, tell him to clean. He's, he's endlessly cleaning this chapel. That's where she's raising this chapel off. So he's had to wipe things down, all that stuff. And she tells him to wipe down this gargoyle. It's like up on the wall. And he doesn't question. He's like, all right. And he starts climbing. She's like, you're an idiot. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. You know, tells him to levitate himself up. Quote, Will yourself up to the gargoyle, Vierna explained. Dritt's fa- small face, face crinkled in confusion. You are a noble of House Doerden, Vierna shouted at him, or at least you will be one day earn that distinction. In your neck purse, you possess the emblem of, of the house, an item of considerable magic. Vierna still wasn't certain if Dritt was ready for such a task. Levitation was a high manifestation of innate drow magic, certainly more difficult than lighting objects in fairy fire or summoning globes of darkness. The Doerden emblem heightened their ease and eights innate powers of drow elves magic that usually emerges as a drow matured whereas most drow nobles drow nobles could summon the magical energy to levitate once every day or so the nobles of house de Warden, with their insignia tool could do so repeatedly normally Vierna would never have tried this on a male child younger than 10 but Drist had shown her so much potential in the last couple of years that she saw no harm in the attempt basically she doesn't care if he gets hurt either just put yourself in line with the statue she explained and will yourself to rise Dritz looked up the female carving, then lined his feet just out in front of the thing's angled and delicate face. He put a hand to his collar, trying to attune himself to the emblem. He had sensed before that the magic coin possessed some type of power, but it was only a raw sensation, a child's intuition. Now that Drips had some focus and confirmation to his suspicions, he clearly felt the vibrations of magical energy. A series of deep breaths cleared distracting thoughts from the young Dro's mind. He blocked out the other sights of the room, all he saw was a statue, the destination. He felt himself grow lighter, his heels went up, and he was on one toe, though he felt no weight upon it. Drista looked over at Vierna, his smile wild in amazement, then he tumbled to a heap. Um, she swore screamed at him and said, try again, but she's impressed. Um, Quote, Vierna too knew that Dritz would eventually succeed. His mind was keen, as sharp as any Vierna had ever known, including those of the other females of House Stewarden. The child was stubborn, too. Dritz would not let the magic defeat him. She knew he would stand under the sculpture until he fainted from hunger, if need be. Then Bryza makes her appearance and said, you know, you should beat him. He's young for that. If he's not going to make you, I find that they... I don't think Bryza likes men at all. I think Bryza, in another... If written in another time, like our time, would definitely be a an LB, you know, LGBTQ character. She would definitely prefer the... She would mate. She would mate with males to produce children, but she would probably. She's a, a praying man. She'd probably kill him right afterwards. She would not care about him. It would only be to further herself. She hates males in all their, you know, in in every way, shape, and form. Um, I just. I, I, it makes me feel bad because Vierna reappears later on in in the series, way later on. Um, and I thought this was a good description of her. Quote, Vierna sat in the chapel the next day watching Drist hard at work polishing the statue of the naked female. This is after she's, she's whipped him, by the way, because she listens to what Bryza has to say. He had levitated the full 20 feet in his first attempt this day. 
Brianna could not help but be disappointed, and this is the part that I really thought was kind of sad, when Dritz did not look back to her and smile at the success. She saw him now hovering up in the air, his hands a blur as they worked the brushes. Most vividly, vividly of all, though, Verna saw the scars on, his brother's naked, on her brother's naked back, the legacy of their inspirational discussion. In the infrared spectrum, the whip lines showed clearly trails of warmth where the insulating layers of skin had been stripped away. He's a five-year-old kid. Um... Verna understood the gain in beating a child, particularly a male child. Few drow males ever raised a weapon against a female unless the order, unless under the order of some other female. How much did we lose, Verna wondered aloud. What more could one such as Dritz become? That is an extremely blasphemous thought. Quote, when she heard the words spoken aloud, Verna quickly br- brushed the blasphemous thoughts from her mind. She aspired to become a high priestess of the Spider Queen, Loth the Merciless. Such thoughts were not in accord with the rules of her station. She cast an angry glare on her little brother, transferring her guilt, and again took out her instrument of punishment. She would have to whip Dritz again this day for a sacrilegious thoughts he inspired, inspired within her. So the relationship continued for another five years, with Dritz learning the basic lessons of life in Drow society while endlessly cleaning the chapel of House Dewerden. Beyond the supremacy of female Drow, a lesson always accentuated by the wicked snake-headed whip, the most compelling lessons were those concerning the surface elves, the fairies. Evil empires often bound themselves in webs of hate towards fabricated enemies, and none in the history of the world were better at it than the Drow. From the first day they were able to understand the spoken word, Drow children were taught that whatever was wrong in their lives could be blamed on the surface elves. Whenever the fangs of Verna's whip sliced and dritz back, he cried out for the death of a fairy. Conditioned hatred was rarely an rational emotion. I'm going to end it here, and I'm going to leave with this. This is a society built on lies. It is a society built on an accepted on a lie that everyone agrees to believe, at least on the surface. And he's being taught this. Um, I thought this was a good place to end because he is being pigeonholed into something that had he gone down this path, he never would have become who he is. And um, I thought it was a good place to end because this I hope this whole episode has been a description of Dro society and the world they live in and how this young Dro elf is going to be raised in this and he doesn't agree with it. So I've really enjoyed doing this one. And I hope you guys come next week or whenever the next one comes out and, uh, and we're and we're getting to one of my favorite parts of the entire series. So thanks, guys. Talk to you soon.